it's funny, Dougal, because <clears throat> I mean, like yourself, I've been in in brackets the climate movement, and for most of the time, me and Kalle have known each other. He never really gave me that much cred for that. But then when I mentioned like we should really talk with Dougal Hine, he was like, "Yeah, I like that guy." That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking. This was, I think, two years ago when we started the podcast. Johan mentioned the Dark Mountain, and I was like, I was very fascinated by the name, to tell you the truth. So it's like, that sounds very gothic and, and slightly sinister. That's very fascinating. And I read the manifesto, and it's very, it was very intrigued. Great to have you on. It's, it's sort of a continuation of, of, of the discourse me and Johan have, have had uh, on the sort of environmental movement. Well, I look forward to our conversation. Then, the man, he's a revolutionary. We want to talk to you about why you no longer talk about climate change. This is the trouble. You write a book where you say, I've realized that maybe I need to stop talking about climate change. And the first question is always about climate change. <laughs> and then what, what happened was... You know, for a long time, the reason why I was interested in talking to people about climate change was, yeah, I mean, okay, I'm fairly troubled by what we know and what we have good grounds to fear about what's implied by the stuff that the science tells us about climate change. But also, it's the place where people who are otherwise sheltered from the shadow side of modernity tend to get their wake-up call. One way of saying it is that you know the modern parts of ourselves, the parts of ourselves that are not allowed to treat that something as real unless it's been delivered to us by the work of science, this is the place where those parts of ourselves get to experience and acknowledge a sense of living in a time of endings, which actually is a much more complex and multidimensional thing. But climate change is that that place where the message is being delivered by the, the right voices for a certain mentality to get to take it seriously. And so I, for years, was involved in all kinds of conversations around climate where it seemed worth throwing myself into because it was like the entry point, the gateway drug to people beginning to question larger and deeper stories about modernity. But in order to go there, it's necessary to start from inside the frame of science because you know climate change is a scientific concept. It's brought to us by the work of the natural sciences and then go beyond that to move from a starting point inside that frame to ask questions that can only be asked once we acknowledge that science can't do all of the work of knowing the trouble that the world is in and telling us what we need to do. And what I experienced during the pandemic was this sense that the boundaries of that frame of science were being kind of electrified. It was no longer possible to think about science because science was meant to be doing all of the thinking of knowing the world and telling us what to do. And the rest of us were basically being enlisted as communicators to deliver the message from the science to everybody we knew. And I'd spent years you know, working with climate change and the arts gently and you know, with some degree of success pushing back against the enlistment of artists as a communication tool to deliver the message from climate science to everybody else and saying, no, it doesn't work like that. Actually, that's not what art is good for. 
And the bit that art can bring to this includes creating the spaces in which we can notice that you know, climate change asks us questions that climate science cannot answer, such as how did we find ourselves here? Is it a piece of bad luck with the atmospheric chemistry that it turned out seven generations down the line that all of these carbon emissions were destabilizing the, the Holocene, which had been the background to our human societies for 10,000 years? Or is it a consequence of a way of approaching the world, a way of seeing and treating everyone and everything that would always have brought us to such a pass, even if the atmospheric chemistry had been different, or even if the IPCC were to turn around tomorrow and go, guys, terribly embarrassing, we did our sums wrong. Turns out you can release as much CO2 as you want. So that was like, those were the kind of conversations I'd been at the center of. And somewhere around September, 2021, it was, I just had this moment of going, ah, maybe it's no longer possible to have a question, a conversation that starts inside a frame of science and go to that deeper and larger territory, which is what I'm really interested in. Because it seems like now, you know, the kind of unite behind the science of the 2018, 2019 climate movements fuses with the following the science of the political presentation of the response to the pandemic. And all of that creates this sort of newly newly heightened version of the authority of science and the politicization of science that just, you know, takes away some of the grounds and some of the space of possibility within which I had been working. And so then maybe we need to start the conversation from, from somewhere else. Um, I, I think it's very fascinating because a big point of view from your book is how the Swedish experience of the COVID lockdowns is so radically different and in Sweden, I mean, and it's pretty hard for someone coming from sort of an American context, maybe, to understand how radically different Sweden handled this and what sort of mental space that created for us. Because there's a radical shift between people in, in the United States, like you said, like telling people to, you know, shut up and get the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, and not questioning, I mean, how many booster shots you should get. No, nobody should be afraid. This is not a conversation about COVID-19. We're not going to go there. But but like, it, it's fascinating because in Sweden, the 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 authorities, so to speak, were radically against a lockdown on sort of egalitarian grounds from day one. And it's very much a political decision in Sweden to just, I mean, try and do this as openly as possible, not have any lockdowns. And and that sort of mental shift when you sort of consume what is news in English, and we are talking in English, hence like the people who will be listening to this podcast will probably uh, consume their, their news in English. And if you're in that mental space, this is the talking point, right? That yeah. COVID lockdowns were a thing of good and were a, a thing of truth and a thing of science, which is fascinating. Yeah. It's hard for me to overstate how strange and particular the experience of living through the spring of 2020 as an Englishman who is deeply settled in Sweden was. You know, at that point, I'd been in Sweden for eight years. My partner is Swedish. My son was born here. Barring surprises, I expect to live out the rest of my life in this country. I speak the language pretty fluently. I'd worked for the Swedish National Theatre. But in all of that time, the culture clashes between England and Sweden are real but subtle. I always say to people who come from the UK and move here, 
know, look at Swedish detective series and look at British detective series. That's the best clue. Because in the British detective <laughs> series, the drama always revolves around a hierarchy. There's always the, you know, the inspector and the sergeant at the center of the story. Usually the inspector is in a kind of slightly maverick role in relationship to the chief superintendent. There's always uniformed officers below the sergeant. And the whole drama works on these gradations of hierarchy. In the Swedish detective series, what you get is Volander you know, sitting around the table with everyone on the team and then going off with his head in his hands, having this you know, kind of angst-laden conversation with his friend, the prosecutor, about what to do with these junior officers who aren't doing what he's told them to do. And that tells you everything you need to know about the difference between these two societies as a starting point to your way in, which is you know, Sweden thinks of itself as a non-hierarchical society. I think it might be truer to say that, that Sweden is a deeply conflict-averse society, which therefore mm -hmm. has strategies for negotiating hierarchy, <laughs> strategies for telling people what to do without anyone having to admit that that's what's happening. Uh, yes, how true, how true. Uh, I mean, right. I, couldn't, I, I think that's the best analysis of the, the sort of British uh, mind I've heard in, in a sentence. Quite time. I feel someone just took off all my clothes. <laughs> and it's been said so many times, Dougal, that, that you know, uh, Sweden is the sort of uh, the easiest country to sort of implement uh, a dictatorship uh, would be Sweden because, like, or, or, or like we wouldn't know <laughs> because right. it, it's just it, we would wake up one day and it would be the new truth, and you know, <laughs> and, and 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 the sort of and this is the sort of thing, right? Because, and you mentioned this in your book as well, Sweden has this sort of, you know, place in history that's very special in the, in a sense that we we escaped sort of the, the uh, in many ways, um, the, the, the many conflicts and the ideology that clashes on the continent and, and in the world. And that sort of played out in a microcosm of Swedish sort of social democratic politics, it sort of ended up with us being the most modern country uh, on earth. That sort of narrative is now being deconstructed or rather maybe shown what that word sort of me meant because modern right. used to be this, this, and for many people still is, this word of, and progress as well, it's a uniformly positive thing. Uh, and modernity is everything that's good for the world, and progress is the sort of uh, chariot that carries it forward. And hence, I mean, Sweden, and, and, and also, and this will be my last point in Sweden, but but like it being this catalyst for conversations in the world, because you see it having these meanings in American discourse, and and and, and it used to be, I think, in British discourse as well, but. But, you know, uh, and when we took this radical different path and now with, with the problems with immigration and everything, this is sort of radically shifted. And I, as a Swede, find that very interesting indeed. And, and hence, it's a good starting point for this conversation. I think it's, it's, it's deeply fascinating for me. Right. And, and I can say likewise that to me, it's really fun to come and like talk about the book with you guys, because that Swedish context of the book is not that accessible or the, the the kind of the the depth behind it is not all available to most of the people I'm getting into conversation with in the English speaking world. So right. yeah, there is this story that Sweden has had about itself, and that you know much of the world has had about Sweden as the world's most modern country. And if you look at Susan Sontag's letter from Sweden, which is written I think 1970 when she'd spent a year in Stockholm, 
And she just very matter of factly says, yeah, you know, in conversations with people in Stockholm, they will just kind of drop in as a matter of fact that, oh, yeah, when, you know, other advanced countries will be doing what we're doing in 10 or 15 years time. And that (laughs) was really part of the background reality for this country. And I mean, that that title was kind of taken up for this very good TV series by this guy who's kind of the Swedish equivalent of Stephen Fry, who made this series called Verlin's Modernaste Land, the world's most modern country. And I would say, you know, now the, the sort of sequel to that is the world's last modern country. What does it mean to have been, you know, the country that pushed furthest along a certain kind of trajectory of modernity? When the tide of modernity is going out, so it's like you're left stranded furthest up the beach. And in many ways, that's, you know, that's my read on where we are here now. But at that moment in sort of February, March, April 2020, it was just deeply weird because people who had grown up here were able to sort of take for granted that uh, obviously Sweden pursuing a different path to what pretty much every other country in Europe was doing, to have trust in the system. For me, uh, I had friends in the UK and the US who were calling me up and going, look, you know, you need to get your government to listen because otherwise in weeks you're going to have you know, unmanageable numbers of deaths from this virus. Look at the charts. And whatever else we say about how the Swedish response played out, we did not end up in that scenario, six weeks or three months or further down the line, that was with full seriousness by people I like and trust being pushed hard um, in that moment in time. And we can say that there were culturally specific reasons why it worked for Sweden to pursue mm. a different route. You know, I think that it's it's worth entertaining the possibility that Sweden, partly through this conflict averseness and partly through very distinctive institutional histories, was able to basically get people to change their behavior in a way that you couldn't easily have done in most other even Northern European countries without seeming to tell people that they had to in that moment. And that that has a lot of psychological benefits for people who are on the receiving end of it compared to what it was like to live through the same time in a country like the UK. But it was just very personal to me because the people I love and the people I've spent my life with and the two countries that I've called home were suddenly pulled radically apart and living in different realities in a way that I had not experienced before. And so that's another of the seeds of the book, really, is just puzzling through what came into view for me, what was revealed in that sense of the word apocalypse by the kind of apocalyptic moment, the moment of hidden things being brought into view of the COVID times. Mm, So apocalypse as unveiling. Yeah, that's it. Okay. But to bring bring it back to, to where you start out in the book, like why you no longer talk about climate change. I wonder when, when you say that we ask too much of science is what do you replace the enlightenment project with? Mm-hmm. Like, are you? <laughs> no, let's 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 make that more. <laughs> con- Dugaldhain, are you against enlightenment? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's tempting to sort of give the same sort of answer that Gandhi gave about Western civilization. 
Um, I'm sure someone at Austin at Western Enlightenment it's, might have said the well, same. What was it? It's it's an interest. No, it's a. Uh, it, it, it would be a nice idea, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, the thing is, historical moments get packaged up and simplified and served back to us, and so the the work isn't simply to take that package and set a minus sign in front of it and go, that thing you thought was all good, it's that thing, but it's all bad. <laughs> the, the kind of the intelligent move. The Illichian move, if you like, because Ivan Illich is a very, very important thinker for me, is to go back into all that's contained within a moment like that and and look at the the very different things that are getting bundled together. Look at the dropped threads that weren't followed up from within a moment like that. With that said, I mean, I do find myself in the book kind of unexpectedly being drawn back to T.S. Eliot's argument about the dissociation of sensibility and sort of a, locating an important moment, an important parting of the ways in modernity in the 17th century, so slightly earlier than uh, where we're generally focused on when we talk about the Enlightenment, mm. and saying that there's, there's a sort of separation of heart and head, which is being played out to comic book extremes now. And that kind of, that came back to me from my undergraduate studies of English literature. Well, I was sat in a, a, a lecture hall in Stockholm listening to two Swedish professors having this you know, debate about, can we do anything about climate change or is it too late? And the guy who was sort of speaking for the, we can we can do it in the conventional sort of sustainability narrative response to the Anthropocene and the rest of it was going, well, it's like this. We've got these two worldviews in the world today. Got worldview A, which is the the people who talk about the are involved in the Anthropocene and climate conversation. And those are the people who believe in science and rationality and technology and progress. And then you've got worldview B, which is characterized by fear and anxiety. And those are the people who don't even believe that climate change is happening. And I'm listening to that and going, wow, that's a really weird asymmetry. Firstly, you've got this strange slippage where worldview A people are not just people involved in, or maybe not even people involved in the work of science, technology, you know, all of that. They're believers in it. So those things have been elevated to a, a religious level within this worldview. And on the other hand, you've got people who are fearing, feeling you know, fear and anxiety about the future. And I'm like, well, that seems to me like a fairly reasonable thing to be feeling at this moment in history. And oh, maybe what we've got here is like a separation between heart and head, which is so much that the people who can feel what is appropriate to the times we're in have been, to some degree, for good reasons, sufficiently alienated from science as a set of practices and institutions that they are just kind of blocking what it's wanting to tell them about climate change, but are nonetheless having an appropriate emotional reaction to the depth of the trouble we're in. And meanwhile, the people who are kind of on board intellectually with the science are also sold on some idea that we should all be in kind of TED Talk mode in terms of this rationalist optimism. I mean, even that feels slightly dated now. It feels like we're slightly beyond that. But certainly in the kind of 2016, 2017 moment, that was definitely, you know, I heard a lot of versions of that worldview A versus worldview B thing. 
and it did just feel like what's being described here is a lot weirder than the people describing it from the world view a perspective are recognizing even within their own words mm. because i find I, I agree with you in the sense that there is that split and of course if we had worldview a proselytizer here that person would probably go enumerating all the gains of enlightenment and equating it with the modern world and we are x times richer fewer people die clean water etc but me and Kalle discussed this the other night that there seems to be or i'm not sure if you you want to run with this one Kalle, but in your work in this critique of enlightenment and modernity there is almost a reminiscent move towards what for lack of a better word would be called the romance mm-hmm. um of the 1800s uh, do i do this description justice Kalle, or do you want to add on this point i i think like for me um the climate movement has has always had this sort of or, or I, I would say certain parts of it have had this very mary shelley-esque vibe to it which i think is you know uh, a recurrence in history uh that sort of makes sense because as people sort of revolted against the sort of rationality uh of of, of the 18 uh and, and 1700s and, and was sort of questing to, towards a modern world where enlightenment or rational thinking was was seen as, as the pivotal virtue mm. uh, or the crowning achievement of Western civilization, if you will. Shelley's work, especially um, Frankenstein, is the uh, is the obvious trope to sort of grab here. But but uh, I, I find it so interesting because it's not only this critique of rationality, but it's also a sort of mourning of what was lost and the sort of as as you said the, the sort of possibilities that were lost you can see this in history as well because another modernity that that we've seen was lost was the uh, um, soviet or marxist version that sort of engulfed uh, half the planet at, at one time or another and there was also a a, a, a deeply rational uh, society uh, they would say we would say uh but it was built on premises that just didn't seem to hold up to reality at one time and weren't to to you know they weren't sustainable and hence this sort of challenge to the to the current sort of western project or the global project of of, of you know modernity i i think is sort of uh similar in that sense right because you could sort of see it coming sort of uh, a part in the seams and also that even the people who sort of believe in it the most have a deep distrust of, of not only the product in itself uh, they have to be either very radical in either sort of way you know either hyper positivistic or or revolutionary uh, in some other sense or they have to be very distrusting of the popular sort of undercurrents of this group or, or or type two group two group b sort of existence because this is the tension we have in the west right and, and this is the tension we see uh play out on, in geopolitics and, and 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 basically everything is lumped into these two camps and you're sort of forced to uh, especially in intellectual conversation you're supposed to take a side here and the fact that you sort of say, no, wait, this sort of thread was lost not in the 50s, not in the 90s, not in the not in the aughts, but maybe 
I mean, 400 years ago, and there was so many radical. No, but I, 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 I want to be very clear about you know I'm not taking the piss out of anything because I think there's a lot of countries now, and currently in 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 southern Europe and in Spain, and I'm always when I'm here I'm shocked of the sort of local commitments, and I'm, I'm always fascinated about the sort of localism in other countries that's not modern and is not this sort of unipolar sort of modernity. I think like, I want to go back to the parts lost because I think there is, as you said, many threads of, of modernity and many threads that were sort of lost along the way. From both me and you, and I think localism has sort of become this thread that you can see in other parts of, of, of Europe even, that's not in the sort of, um, in the modernity of the sort of urban financial and, and industrial hubs of the world. So there's loads of stuff there to go into, isn't there? I'm just starting with the romanticism thing. It's interesting going back a few years when Paul and Paul Kings North and I were both deeply involved in Dark Mountain. We used to disagree a bit about this. I think Paul would have been quite happy for Dark Mountain to embrace an identity as a romantic movement. And mm. I always wanted to push back against that. And that's partly that's partly what, you know, related to the, the dissociation of sensibilities, Eliot thing of, you know, going fairly or unfairly, what romanticism seems to represent mm. is a reaction against rationalism from the other side of that kind of severed, dissociated set of sensibilities. Now, obviously, that's not doing full justice to the intellectual content of the romantic movement. And we could talk about, you know, Goethe's science or, you know, Coleridge's thinking or whatever. But as a, you know, seen from a distance, that's what that's what you're embracing if you self-describe as identifying with romanticism. And it's always been more interesting to me to go, you know, a kind of a tempered reason that isn't making absurd claims in the name of rationality that is kind of rooted in a more integrated, I mean, we can get there via all sorts of directions now. I mean, part of why Illich is important to me is because he's so rooted in, in medieval thought and therefore very grounded in a set of assumptions that just don't fit a post-Cartesian kind of severing of mind and body or heart and head. That just it's not easy for him to take that seriously. You, but we can also get there via Ian McGilchrist these days and the, you know, the influence that his thinking is having for lots of different people. Could you could you slightly unpack that for, for, for me as well as maybe some of the listeners? Great. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So Ian McGilchrist, who is a um, neuroscientist and philosopher and originally a literary scholar, he has um, this kind of huge sort of, body of work now around um, the two sides of the brain and the two worlds that they inhabit and the relationship between the two. And he sketches this kind of grand historical narrative of these kind of periods in which the two sides are working together very fruitfully. And then this will tip over into a period where you know, the, the left side of the brain, the bit that can only see the world in a sort of static, calculative, quantitative way, dominates and doesn't realise that there is any more to the world than the part of the world that it experiences. Different traditions are finding a, you know, a useful metaphor, at least, and possibly more than that, Ian's work for precisely attempting to not get trapped in the sort of romantic versus rationalist binaries. So, I mean, the other bit of this for me is the book is clearly thinking 
about and with the concept of modernity. And I have I have my own sort of common sense definition of modernity, which is that modernity is this sort of historical window within which it seems to make sense to treat our proximity to the future as the most important and best thing about mm. the group with which we identify. And so that mm. starts as being quite a kind of geographically specific pocket you know, in the sort of 18th century, really, and radiates outwards until it covers a lot of the world in one way or another. And meanwhile, you get these kind of different reactions to modernity. And obviously, you know, postmodernism, we generally think of the sort of Paris post-68, the kind of thought that coalesced in seminar rooms in Paris after the sort of historical defeat of 1968. You also have a kind of earlier reactionary anti-modernism from uh, really from people like René Guénon and so on from the 20s onwards. And what I've always found more stimulating than either of those currents is what Gustavo Esteva and Madhusuri Prakash framed in the 90s as the grassroots postmodernism that is coming from communities and movements that have been on the receiving end of projects of modernization. Mm. So in other words, it's coming from the global south. It's coming from indigenous networks, peasant networks. There's one great European thinker who belongs within this grassroots postmodernist tradition, and that's John Berger, who sort of took his Marxism into dialogue with the one of the last pockets of peasant culture in Western Europe in the the Haute Savoie and the French Alps, which parallels very much the journey of someone like Subcomandante Marcos in Mexico, who also is a Marxist who sort of retreats to the mountains in Chiapas and in dialogue with an indigenous peasant culture, formulates something which has a sort of subtler and more radical relationship to time than the linear progressive temporality of mainline Marxism. And so for me, those have been the interesting people to think with. Vanessa Machado de Oliveira and her book, Hospicing Modernity, where the image is like modernity can't be sustained or saved or made sustainable, nor is the task to have a revolution and overthrow it or to kill it. The task is to give it a good ending and let mm. it pass on the bits that we wouldn't gladly lose from the inheritance of modernity in this moment. The other book that I find very helpful is The Darker Side of Western Modernity by Walter Mignolo, which traces these kind of five trajectories that he sees being in play. And Mignolo is writing from Argentina. And one of his one of his lines is, I think where I am, rather than the mm. Cartesian cogito. And he's like, there have been a handful of places in the world from where it has been possible to think and speak as if you're speaking from everywhere and nowhere. And for the rest of us, we've not had that bizarre privilege. So mm. we know that our thinking is coming from somewhere specific. It has a locale. And part of my work has been figuring out, well, what does that mean as a European? What does it mm. mean as an Englishman grounded in Sweden to think about modernity from, on the one hand, you know, the country that pioneered the Industrial Revolution and the first round of globalization under the British Empire, and on the other hand, the country that has been the world's most modern country that that just takes it for granted that it can be where Nobel Prizes are awarded from, that has this other kind of sort of unreflective centrality to the world of modernity. Like these can be good places from which to think about how to hospice modernity 
how to you know not throw out everything that's been achieved during these generations but get real about what's involved in discerning which bits we're not going to get to take with us though we would want to which bits we can take with us and what work is required for that and which bits were never as good as we were telling each other they were in the first place so that's kind of where i land the book really is with that kind of map of how we find the sorts of work that are that are called for that's that's really attractive to me i have to say that's really attractive yeah i came <clears throat> come to think of this uh, kipling quip what do they know of england who only england know <laughs> oh yes Host- it's like you could like what do they know about globalization that only globalization know right i mean <laughs> that's us right picked up on on one piece when reading your book uh, I'm, I'm thinking of because you describe now some of the differences between yours and, and and Paul's perspective on on sort of the the dark mountain project and and essentially how, how you approach uh, modernity without necessarily ne- needing to have a solution to the problems or the solution orientation is part of the problem one could also say but I'm I'm wondering also here um Because there was one part in, at the end of your book um, where, where you talk about like no left turn, where where there was this man who talked about, well, should we have some sort of system change instead of climate change, which is obviously a sort of whistle for leftist politics, which you also, also clarified. But I wonder about this because I, I don't think that you're alone in experiencing this gravitation from perhaps starting out focusing on climate issues in a left versus right spectrum but then either moving position or discarding that axis entirely could could you speak to that point um also yeah i mean one of the things that i reference in that chapter is james c scott you know the seeing like a state guy and he has this little paper on vernaculars cross-dressed as universals uh, it seems to me that one of the examples that we almost never talk about in that context is the whole idea of the left-right frame. You have this thing which obviously starts with this single historical moment of revolutionary France, and that then, like lots of things that originated in cities like Paris or London in the late 18th and 19th century, gets projected backwards and outwards as if this has discovered and disclosed a structure that is just always there rather than being a historically specific frame and formulation and package. And so, I mean, I have a little bit of fun at the expense of Naomi Klein and her This Changes Everything book, because you read This Changes Everything, and Paul wrote a review of it for the, I think for the London Review of Books, where he said this, you know, well, clearly the one thing it doesn't change is all of the political commitments that Naomi Klein already had, because she literally acknowledges in the book (laughs) this just makes it undeniable and scientifically proven that we need to do all of the things that i was already saying yeah i just i i think that's too cheap 
I think that what you know, what the news that arrives under the banner of climate change is telling us about our ways of living and how we got here is more costly than that. It calls things more deeply into question than that. Chris Smage, who I draw on a lot in the book and I have a huge amount of time for, he's the the small farm future guy. He uh, he'll often say, you know, people's attachment to the the nation state as if this is a kind of timeless universal thing that's just going to be there in any possible future is always baffling to him. That actually when we're looking at what is called for politically in the times around and ahead of us, these kind of nation state level, you know, and modern ideological artifacts and structures are not necessarily that much help to the kind of reality on the ground we're going to be dealing with. And Chris has this idea of the supersedure state, which is basically, it, it, it comes from something that beekeepers describe of how you have a situation where a, a queen in a beehive dies, and then the, the hive has to kind of quickly turn other bees into queens in order to deal with the vacuum that has arisen. But Chris's version of that applied to human societies is, you get these scenarios in which you know the nominal power and extent of the centers of power remains as it was but in practice their ability to exert that power is getting weaker and weaker on the ground and pragmatic improvised responses have to be created by those in place to the increasing absence or the increasing inability of those who are formally uh, required to administer the existing centers of power emanating from the, the nation state structures in the reality on the ground. And that can go very bad or it can go quite well, depending on all sorts of factors on the ground, but that that might be where the action is. You know, another version or something that, that kind of resonates with that is this thing that Ivan Illich said towards the end of his life, it's not written down anywhere, but it's been mentioned to me by his friends. He used to say, the limit of political possibility today is the number of people who can sit around a table and share a meal together. Mm. And I always say that sounds lots more pessimistic than it actually is, because we don't all have to be sitting at the same table every mealtime. You can actually start from that statement and extrapolate from it something that scales outwards without scaling upwards to become quite you know, large and widespread and effective, but still operating primarily at a human scale. And so, you know, a lot of what I'm interested in now is what are the what are the things that create the conditions of possibility for what Chris is describing in a small farm future, for you know, what some of the solar punk guys are talking about, for these kind of smaller scale improvised responses that are not heavily structured by ideologies inherited from um, modernity and that, yeah, create the conditions of possibility for lives worth living after the failure of the attempt to sustain or double down on projects of modernity. And I mean, the other person who comes to mind in thinking about all of this is Federico Campagna, who has um, is this Italian philosopher he has a book called Recreation for Adolescence. Is that it? That's the subtitle. Pro prophetic. Uh, the, the title's got something to do with prophecy or prophetic in it. And the subtitle is Recreation for Adolescence. But he goes, sometimes you're born into the ending of a world. This is a thing that happens. It's happened before in other times and places. 
the sign of being at the ending of the world that you were born into is that the future doesn't work anymore. When people try and you know, draw a line from the recent past through the present into a hopeful extension of that trajectory, it just doesn't convince people in the way it did two or three generations ago. And maybe, you know, within the field of politics as it exists, the forces that are able to mobilize cultural energy are the ones that appeal to the past instead. And Federico then he says, you know, so what should you do? What's worth doing if it is your discernment that you were born into the ending of the world that you find yourself in? So, well, stop trying to make sense according to the logic of the world that is ending and start trying to create good ruins because whatever comes next, whatever is already coming from the edges is going to be made not from a clean sheet, but using, you know, the discarded rubble of ways of making things work, of institutions and structures and bodies of knowledge that assumed one form within the world that is coming to an end that will be put to presently unimaginable uses in the the unfolding of it all. But you can, you know, looked at from that vantage point, you can go, right, how do we take, where are the resources within our current societies, which are not under an obligation to pretend to make sense according to the logic of the world that is ending? And that might be, you know, pools of capital that are held by private foundations, or it might be work that is done by people who get to call themselves artists and cultural institutions, because the artist has been the figure that's had a special privilege of not having to make sense according to the dominant logics of modernity. And then go, right, how do we put those resources into the service of creating conditions of possibility without trying to pretend we can have plans and exercise control over there being ways of making life work, taking care of each other, feeding ourselves, having societies worth living in as all of this continues to play out. So that's you know, that's the kind of frame from which I'm coming at the moment. And I come from the left and I still draw heavily on you know, whether it's John Berger or Jeremy Seabrook or you know, lots of people who have been deeply anchored in left traditions. But I'm not convinced that those categories are, or identities are that helpful in the kinds of conversations and collaborations that are being called for, especially when we get close to the ground now and in the times that are coming. T- tell me if you, sorry, Kalle, interrupt me if you, if, okay, but t- tell me if you find this to be to be un- too unpalatable to speak to, but a part of me asking the question is in relation to the anecdote you told me some time ago that when your work was being picked up by the human ecologists in Sweden, they're like, oh, this is really interesting stuff, Dark Mountain, uh, Dougald Hine is thinking new thoughts here. And then it turned out that that route for your future work would be barred by none other than Andreas Malm. <laughs> friend, friend of the show, we've reviewed his work before. So I, I had a near escape. I nearly got co-opted into academia. And thanks to Andreas Malm, it didn't happen. Good work, Andreas. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, forever in his debt in that respect. I mean, he didn't know me or my work particularly. It had been taken up by other people in his department who were very keen to like bring me into the department. I was like, well, guys, you do know I don't even have a PhD. Then I, there was all of this kind of buzz and they were trying to get me down there to do things. And Andreas reacted quite strongly against the idea of anyone with a connection to Dark Mountain coming in there. And uh, he said, well, I'm not, I'm not pretending that I have the right to stop you being invited to come and 
speak in the department. But if you come and you speak and you say the things that I've heard from people from Dark Mountain, then I reserve the right to hold a seminar for my students where I tell them what I think of this, which is that it is poisonous. And I said, oh, great. I think you've just proposed a great solution here, which is that you should be the respondent at the event that I'm coming to speak at. Yeah. And if you also want to hold a seminar following up from it, then I'm happy to attend. And if you think that I'm so poisonous that I shouldn't be allowed to attend a seminar on my work, then that's interesting. And after that, I didn't hear any more from him. But uh, that was uh, an interesting lesson in you know how you hit up against the kind of electric fences um mm. in attempting to talk about these things let's say i mean uh, your work is of course titled at work in the ruins so maybe there's some reminiscent evola men among the ruin that he picked up on here look it's not hard to go on the internet and find people selectively quoting paul king's north to um make him out to be something uh, terribly evil Paul's a dear friend and long-standing collaborator of mine, and we don't necessarily agree on everything, but I'm not about to take part in any kind of public denunciation of him, which is what Andreas suggested. You know, you choose your friends and you stand by them is my attitude. And I think one of the most infantile things about the intellectual climate that we've had in recent years has been this idea that unless you agree with someone about everything, then you shouldn't touch them. Like there's no way that we can do any thinking or have any conversations or actually get into any useful collaborations if we pretend that that is a standard that we can apply. I think it's interesting because I think um, that's sort of the path me and you, you and have both sort of taken intellectually. You, you, you are more committedly uh, th- than me. Uh, it has to be said. He he's a bit of a sadist when it comes to uh, said electric fences. But uh, I sort of recognized I could I could sense the force field in academia and and promptly never went into it. But uh, I think that's why these conversations are so interesting because I come from a sort of uh, right milieu of I, I'm a I'm a business major, which <laughs> which is I mean and and you know when I talk to to many of my of my peers from from days of study by the way Uppsala now that many have and I laughed out loud reading your book because many of them have now pivoted to, to you know climate change related fields it's it's very fascinating because even that the last year the sort of uh collapse of capital in 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 the west has also sort of radically changed uh, the, the 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 material sort of uh underpinnings of that wave of you know green capital and sort of green technologies and the sort of engineering solutions that were supposed to a sort of make people rich uh, certain people rich but also you know uh, ch- change our lives and sort of they engineer us out of this crisis and i think what you speak to is the sort of also crisis of of, of spirit and a sense and the sort of We've read sort of a lot of of post capitalist thinkers. I mean, we've we've done you know um, uh, capitalist realism and those sort of texts, and we've always sort of come out of those readings very depressed. And my feeling is that a lot of people, whether they de- uh, define um, you know define themselves uh, as right wing or left wing, they're very depressed because the current times. And the sort of inability of, of people to, to, to you know, uh, imagine a, a sustained future 
you know, we, we sort of brought up uh, the fact that, you know, our children are supposed to have it better in some way. Um, I, I recently had a, a son of my own. And it's really fascinating because this isn't uh, the, 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 the sort of impetus of, of things getting better, i.e. material wealth. That's a thing that didn't exist before this sort of conception of modernity sort of emerged, right? Every consequent generation is supposed to, I don't know, go to the moon or something, or, or, or you know, the sort of 50s conception of the, the, the thing we, I remember, you know, watching the Jetsons as a kid, uh, Saturday night cartoon or Saturday morning cartoons. And I was like, this is going to be the future. And I think a lot of the angst for people uh, that sort of converted into political or cultural angst and sort of creating these extremes is basically maybe one for for sort of quote unquote elite people that that sort of future now seems very far away. But B, people who are who've never been included in some sort of you know winning side of of this equation of the of the modern project. And hence, you know, when everything else has been stripped away, and especially sort of the, the sense of the place, mm-hmm. and the sort of discourse you're presenting to us here, I find deeply fascinating and also hope-giving because it's it's sort of something human. It's something that can be done. It's not putting faith into science or, or the ingenuity of Silicon Valley or, or you, know, uh, you know, Elon Musk or, or one of these people who are highly fa- uh, fallible and instead sort of goes back to no well, what can we do on my block uh, and, and how can we think ourselves sort of past this failed modernity so what was occurring to me as i was listening to you carl was i'm we all know that there's this kind of predicament of how everything kind of economically and therefore societally right now has been built around the necessity of you know ongoing exponential economic growth but that actually there's a kind of twin of that in the kind of cultural and spiritual space which is that it's not just that things fall apart economically and societally if you don't if you can't sustain that kind of frankly unsustainable economic growth but it's also that culturally and spiritually without that momentum things fall apart as well. And a lot of what we're seeing in our societies has to do with that side of it. Like, like you mean like your sense of self? Uh, well, sense of self, I, I guess, you know, meaning, belonging, we could try and map out a set of words around it. But it sort of came into focus for me when Carl was speaking about depression. And, you know, Mark Fisher is the instance of someone who was both a great diagnostician and victim of yeah. that. Yeah. And I think John Berger, perhaps, as somebody who actually, you know, was sort of tapping very deeply such that he provides some kind of a clue or a model of how you go beyond where Fisher and a lot of people on the left of his generation got stuck. It's, I mean, Berger says somewhere that you know, nihilism is a, a privileged position like it only works when it's when you're cushioned on extreme material privilege it's not something that you will find among the communities that are on the wrong side of the walls that divide the world in Berger's terms and I think that's really true that fits with my experience and I think that therefore one of the reasons why we get dead-ended if we're too stuck within the ways of thinking and inheritances of 
you know, modern ideologies is that they were subsidized by all of this growth, all of this, you know, all of the colonialism and the oil and the rest of it, such that they didn't have to meet people's spiritual needs, or at least they forgot. Maybe it was there in earlier iterations. You can find strands of English socialism that have a real deep kind of resonance on cultural and spiritual levels. But by the mid 20th century, the achievements of social democracy in one form or another are taking the left away from that at the same time as, you know, the Soviet project has in its own way gone away from that. Mm. And so now it was interesting when you were asking about romanticism earlier and I was talking about the difference between how me and Paul used to see things. I was wondering whether Paul and Martin Shaw, who was also very close to Dark Mountain, whether they might see things slightly differently now because both of them have gone through these conversions to Eastern Orthodoxy, mm. or to Christianity in the form of Eastern Orthodoxy, let's say. Mm. And that, I, I suspect that, you know, th- that they might have more room for reason within an Orthodox worldview than uh, a straight on romanticism would suggest. But that's a conversation to have with them. But anyway, I think that a lot of the cultural energy today, a lot of the salvage work of going, which bits does it make sense to take with us, involves not least um, the deep spiritual ground of our own cultural heritage. And I mean, Johan, I I read the review that you um, wrote of that book on oikophobia. The Western uh, Self-Contempt by Benedict Beckel. That's it. Yeah. Uh, And I was thinking about that in relation to, you know, what someone said to me the other day, it's really strange. And these networks that I was part of where three years or five years ago, it was all talking about indigenous stories. Now there's this whole mix of Christianity and you know biblical material in those same conversations and sometimes that creates really difficult fractures of you know alienation because people can be carrying huge amounts of damage that have been done in the name of christianity but at the same time i do think that part of the work of listening to learning from being in dialogue with indigenous cultures in a grown up way is listening to what we're being sent back to look at within our own ancestral lines, mm. including reckoning with the reckoning with the damage and the toxic sides of that, but not reducing them to the damaging and toxic sides of them. And that that definitely feels to me like part of where we're being sent, because if you try to solve all of this, or if you try to respond to all of this inside the box of what is allowed to be real within secular modernity, and you let in the shit, the toxicity that was cropped out of the picture when we were telling ourselves the the Hans Rosling version of the story of what modernity has been, but you still keep out the other stuff, the spiritual, cultural, unmeasurable stuff that was not meant to be taken seriously by grown-ups within the frame of modernity, then it is just going to send you into a, a spiral of depression. And we, we have to let the world be weirder than modernity was willing to allow, I think. I think it's a it's a really good point that you make about several years ago indigeneity was was really dominating debates on on uh, climate politics or or I think also uh, social justice discussions uh, definitely within the left 
but also increasingly in in liberal uh, establishments. But coming back to the point, it seems also then at least dialectically to make sense that it's not that you leave walkover to whatever or whoever professes to speak on behalf of indigenous communities, but rather that you eventually or other groups around you start defining what is or searching for at least what is your own indigeneity, so to speak. If you look at others' indigeneity, then eventually coming back to, well, surely this onlooker of myself cannot be only a making of a modern order. If that recedes, then something else will come back or reemerge. Or, or did you see where, where, where I'm thinking of here? Yeah, I mean, I think the there's there's a danger of, or let let's put it this way: there there is a a reaction against the the valorization of the new, which is intrinsic to modernity, where you turn and look in the opposite direction. And that can be, on the one hand, there can be wisdom in that. Like if you're out for a walk and you get lost, turning around and retracing your steps is not a dumb move. On the other hand, if the problem, you sort of have to diagnose where, you know, what the thing that's gone wrong here is, because you can respond to that fixation on the new by fixating on the old. Can respond to the fixation on the future by fixating on the past, yeah, yeah. or you can go well. Like what the 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 thing that's really been lost in the fixation on the new and the fixation on the future is any relationship to the timeless, the eternal. If that's what you're actually looking for, then fixating on the past and the old is no better than fixating on the future and the new. And so you see what I mean. There are like different different turns that can be made that can arise from the same initial moment of going, guys, I think we might have gone wrong here. We've come completely adrift from any connection to anything outside of this kind of relationship to the future and the new. And the future isn't there the way it used to be. The new is looking like a shoddier version of the old rather than like what progress was meant to be. And so then part part of the frustration that there can be with a kind of secular left or liberal perspective is that it wants to just put a oh don't go there sign against anything that has the potential to lead in a toxic direction rather than asking for discernment i mean it's actually you know who you know who said this really well years ago zizek in the, what was that film the pervert's guide to ideology that he did and the, yeah. the the clip in that where they have the rammstein video <laughs> and he's like you know this is the right rammstein this is the right move that you make in response to Nazism. It's not to go anything that's even been touched by it aesthetically is automatically off limits because then you're ceding lots of cultural ground to the worst possible people. What you do is you go and look for all of the stuff that isn't the thing that's actually the evil toxic thing within it and you steal that back. And so in the same way, like not ceding the ground of this intuitive and culturally quite energized move of like going, we, we we took a wrong turning somewhere. We need to look back. We need to take more seriously where we came from than we have been doing. It's got resources that might help us figure out a way that we can keep going. Like not ceding that to the worst possible people just because the first moves of it might lead in the same direction that they might then take somewhere we don't want to go. Oh
Does, does that make sense as a as a way? Of it does. It? It does. But that's for me. That 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 sort of even verges on sort of a theological discussion in the sense because modernity has become so puritanical and it's very much it, it's sort of a Cromwellian thing in a sense, right? Because you have on one part you have sort of a, a leveler, sort of very uh, egalitarian very sort of let's let's just chop everything down and restart it's, it's the system right or we have the ultra sort of puritanical no we need a very top-down approach to this and it, and it's about you know faith in a very specific sort of system and the system has to be run by by state power and it's sort of the antithesis of 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 the sort of syncretic view that I find the most interesting sort of pathways forward, which is always, you know, sort of rooted, if not outright rooted in, in, in sort of Christianity, it's rooted in some sort of identity space of where we've come from. And 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 it's it's very interesting that you said that Paul had converted to Christianity because I did not know that. Actually, I, I, I'm obviously not as read up on him as I, I, I should be, but but it's it's very interesting because you see this, I think, on all sides of the ideological, ideological spectrum, people who sort of want to disengage from the sort of tribal politics of left and right and sort of want to integrate some sort of greater maybe metaphysical space I think, and I think in themselves as well, because because they've sort of stopped believing in the God of progress. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, okay, but people have survived before. Uh, and we've sort of built something here on, on, on the grounds of, of believing some things. And, and we've le- learned in the name of progress that these things were sort of very bad. But they cannot have been all bad since we sort of succeeded. Well, we stumbled along the way, sure. But the father, our father's fathers, you know, our forefathers, they, they survive. So it must, a lot of it, or some parts of it, must have been fulfilling, must have been sort of, there must be something in there. And 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 also sort of in, uh, I say this, I talk with you about this all the time, but especially when we have a large sort of uh, immigration, uh, we have a large a number of immigrants in Sweden who come from a milieu that's not modern, that's not, you know, secularist, that's not, you know, and I wouldn't call it pre-modern, I think that's doing a disservice, but they just have a, a different sort of understanding of, of the sort of space. It's it's very hard, and it's, I think, in Sweden, it sort of has, why, why the, the sort of, quote-unquote, in, integration of these people into Swedish society has been so hard, is that we are so ultra-modern, and that we've sort of taken... I would say almost a colonial view that when once you step out, uh, step into Sweden, you you become modern in, in a sense, and you sort of subscribe to not only the sort of tenets of of, of you know, but but you sort of they they would discard sort of family bonds and they would do everything to become a Swede and like this atomized sort of creature in 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 the social democratic society. Yeah, it's part part of the sort of. Part of the ignorance or blindness that uh, being among the winners of modernity bequeaths you is the the sort of blithe assumption of obviously everyone wants to be like me. Yeah. That goes with the, you know, we're the people who live closest to the future. Everyone else is on their way here. You know, I, I think I might want to say that you know, lots of the folks who I got to know, you know, when I was, I, I did Swedish for immigrants classes, 
yeah. so 2014, 20, yeah, 2014 it was. So um, alongside some of the first wave of mostly young men arriving to escape the war in Syria. And I, my partner, Anna, she's Swedish, but she had worked and lived a lot in the Middle East and speaks Arabic. And therefore our home became a kind of a, a place where, you know, people who had recently arrived in this society and, you know, white Swedish folks were hanging out and getting to know each other and a little pocket of, you know, some possibility of genuine intercultural encounter. But that that's not easy to do in mm. a society that takes the obviousness of the ways it do th does things so much for granted that it hardly notices them. And mm. I find that even as an Englishman coming to Sweden, there are lots of things about the ways yeah. that things work here that are really hard for me to get my head around and where everyone just like, frowns and can't even quite see what I'm pointing at when I'm trying to explain why this is really like, complicated and not intuitive. You you sort of hope that under the best under the best conditions, part of what can happen is that those who have come from societies that have a a rather different experience of modernity, let's say, mm. um, to the Swedish experience, can actually help us figure out some of the stuff that mainline Swedish society has forgotten how to do about being yeah. in community, looking after each other. And you know, in the next breath, I want to say that living in a small town in poorer commune in a rural area of Sweden, um, I feel like my community has forgotten less of that stuff than yeah. the big city Sweden that I experienced for my first you know, nine years in this country. And that that's, again, part of what gets kind of either tarred or brushed under the carpet in the sort of worldview A versus worldview B story is right. how much of what's going to be needed is being carried by those who are kind of marked as outsiders or marked as backward in one way or another, whether because they're rural, small town white people or because they are urban, recently arrived immigrants within the, the kind of dominant assumptions of the liberal urban culture. And then you know, we have people who I very much dislike who come along politically and are very good at sort of setting one of those groups of outsiders against the other, mm. which is profitable politically, but doesn't get us any closer to figuring out how we're going to make things work in the times ahead in these societies. So that I guess that's sort of my 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 take on it. And it's also interesting because from the other side, you have this sort of, you know, uh, group A behavior of being, you know, no, I mean, we have to suspend democracy because you're just poisonous and dangerous. And and we're not we're not going to entertain a debate or even a discussion We're we're going to we're going to call you, you know, disgusting and we're going to do a cordon sanitaire that so, sort of reinforces this sort of behavior on all sides. So, um, yeah. And, and so, so what you end up with is something that is broken. Do you know, you know that? Right. What's her name? Um, she's editor of I think it's The Tablet in the US. And she wrote these two great essays on brokenism where she's like the real fault line within American politics today is not left and right or like any of the other frames we're normally given. It's those who think that things are broken and those who think that, you know, they're just, you know, they need a bit of patching up. Like the, the, that's the divide. And like, people who don't agree with each other politically can nonetheless 
recognize a lot in what each other are saying on the kind of brokenism side of the line. And, and you know, where I, like, I've had that conversation with people in European Green parties. I'm like, in the parliament, are you like, are you the avant garde of the three old blocks that are basically everything still works and we just need to tweak it a little bit this way or that? But are you just like the the kind of um, the sustainable avant garde of that? Or do you have more in common with the weird mix of outsider parties who have a substantial proportion within the parliament these days who, while you might disagree strongly in lots of ways with what they are pushing for and their explanation of why things are broken, are nonetheless capitalizing on people's deeply felt sense of how broken things are in these societies. And I think that's like a, a real question for green politics. But I think that the actual, like what follows from this diagnosis is mostly what we've already talked about in terms of look for how to work closer to the ground, um, look for how to rebuild from, I, I think a lot about Polanyi's You mean Karl Polanyi? Karl Polanyi, yeah, in The Great Transformation. He has this thing of the double movement where he's like, you have the the sort of first wave of globalization and free market liberalism. And his, his famous soundbite is, you know, laissez-faire was planned. That's the, the first movement, the top-down movement, the sort yeah. of the great reset of its day, I sort of say in the book. And then you have against that, not the thing that Marxism would like to narrate of the kind of unified class consciousness as the source of what pushes back against that. That's only at best part of the story, that actually what you have is an improvised response coming from many directions, often starting locally in response to the destruction that is being caused by this utopian and self-interested project of free market liberalism. And that is people just responding to the chaos and destruction that they're seeing unfolding from that yeah. without necessarily having very much in common politically or socially or culturally and without necessarily having to like each other or collaborate closely. And through that, you build something which eventually a number of generations down the line emerges into the big political movements of the early to mid 20th century and achieves things like the social democratic settlements of and post-war era. But uh, I, I think that that sort of not looking for kind of two things that exist in conflict with each other on the same plane, but looking for th two things that are kind of asymmetric and can't even necessarily recognize each other, that are never going to be presented meaningfully as two choices on a ballot paper, um, might be a better kind of way of mapping where we are and what to look for and where the where the energy and the possibility worth contributing to is. See, see, this is, I, I mean, I, I find this very interesting because I, I talk to you on all the time about my, my mom's Italian uh, and she's the most model, model Swedish citizen that has ever been produced by the social democratic system. When Kalle says I talk to Johan all the time, he means he talks to me all the time about his Italian mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, but, rather, but, rather, but rather when I go south of the Alps, I see a radically different sort of approach to politics, which isn't top down. There's this wonderful uh Gogo Vidal line uh I think from the 70s where he he he, he sort of escapes uh the 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 uh, uh 60s and 70s sort of breaking down in the United States and moves to 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 Amalfi and he goes I think he's in uh Federico Fellini's Roma uh and he's sitting on some bench I, I can't remember if this is from from an interview of his 
from that movie or from somewhere else. But he says, you know, the, the great thing about the Italians is that thousands of years ago, they sort of realized that politics was bullshit. Uh, uh, and they've sort of said, you know, whatever's coming from Rome, you know, we just it's going to happen. We just have to muddle on through it. And I think just this sort of realization, while in, in a Protestant northern country can seem like irresponsible and nihilistic, and for, I, I mean, the majority of my lifetime has seen you know, irresponsible and nihilistic, now seems slightly hopeful. <laughs> because, you know, uh, when when you are in Spain or when you are in Italy, you have this sort of fragments of an older system of guilds, of local government, of local governance, and of local sort of identity that's not really present in these unitary states up north. Because, I, I mean, Germany is probably uh, uh, a slight anomaly here because of its history. But it's interesting that both Sweden and and and, uh, and, and England, or, or well, I'll say England rather than Great Britain, uh, has this sort of hyper uh, uh, centralization uh, and historically has been the two most maybe centralized countries in Europe. And, and you know, the US comes from this sort of radical tradition of not being that, but but more and more have uh, due to sort of geopolitical needs and economic needs and others have become this very much centralized country and, and i think you know that sort of version of modernity is very much has been presented to us especially in this sort of covid dance ironically in sweden it took another part again uh talking about parts but when when you go down in south you see this sort of Latin alternative to modernity that's not really buying a hundred percent of the laissez-faire stuff and says no. I mean, I mean, farmers should have certain rights, and it's interesting to do local stuff, local foods, and local traditions, and local festivals, and you know, and all these things that for me seem to be only buzzwords in Sweden. You know, the country, the countryside should flourish. Well, okay, but like. All, all that, the politics that even sort of uh, suggested that, uh, I mean, the Third Party is an interesting example because the only peasant party in Sweden now is the most hyper-modernist, you know, version of itself it could ever be. So those are the sort of differences I, I find interesting and, and, and that's where you speak to. And I, I really find myself in agreement there. Mm. Yeah, I, I, a lot of it is just within modernity, you have this expansion of both the state and the market, where more and more the the dominant and legible logics of how anything gets done are either, I'm doing this because I'm being paid to, and I need money because otherwise I'll be homeless next month. Or I'm doing this because I'm being told to by somebody who has the ability to exercise power over me. And so the you know, the fact that humans are capable of coming together and doing things for reasons that aren't dominated by either of those logics kind of goes missing from our experience or is kind of written back in as a tertiary element, the third sector, volunteering, civil society, rather mm. than as the first thing that everything else depends on. And I mean, David Graeber was very good at Sort of drawing attention to this, he'd talk about the everyday communism without which everything would grind to a halt. Like if everyone mm. literally behaved the way that we officially describe human beings as behaving, then nothing would work. It's only because it's all subsidized by 
our everyday kindness and generosity and care and willingness to do things for each other without keeping accounts that anything ever 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 works but we have to sort of make explicit again or make sufficiently explicit those capacities we have to relearn and practice those capacities because they become like muscles that have become wasted through lack of use so out of that, you begin to get something which is a bit like what, what you're describing of that sort of strange hope of seeing the capacity for muddling through in mm. societies that have been, you know, that have less thoroughly modernized themselves, let's say, than Sweden has. You know, looking for where are the pockets even within a society like Sweden, which have mm. retained, have had to retain some of that capacity or had to reinvent or reimport some of that capacity. And how do we create contexts in which we're able to sort of lean in together to the overlap of that between different pockets like that that's how you find like the most hopeful glimpses of possibility i think within uh these you know highly modernized societies starting from here can, can i pick it back on that because uh, i think i think it's good that you try to ground this back to sweden because my view essentially of what was the the green party or green or, or climate movement not that long ago but like maybe 15 years or so there was still sort of you know the the schumacher phrase smallest beautiful and then over time this kind of um the shift that Kalle talks about of his his uh, business friends going into climate change because that's a great business opportunity uh you could sort of trace this with the growth of these windmills from what is essentially like a tree to becoming the size of like the Eiffel Tower. Uh, and at some point yeah. it occurred to me like this is no longer anarchic or anarchistic. This is technocratic. Like to to build these things, to manage these projects, you have to have a different mindset and hence a different goal or for society. You're, you're team A to go back to what you talked about earlier. Like I know it's a silly, like visceral aspect of the argument you're making, but did you see the the point? I think that's really. I think you've you've put your finger on something there that I hadn't seen so clearly before. That idea that so Illich had this threshold of counterproductivity that was a central concept for his books in the seventies, which is that you can have something which is you know which is a good thing. And as it increases in scale, it crosses a threshold, uh, which is not just that you get diminishing returns. It's not just that you get negative externalities. It's that it becomes actively counterproductive. It becomes a qualitatively very different thing. And just to kind of to ask the question of like, what size of wind turbine was the point at which it crossed that threshold is a really excellent question, which I've never heard yeah. put before, but that I think you could you could do a lot with. And one of the things I'm describing in the book is this sense of a kind of fork in the road, which is between what I call the big path and the small path, which is really a set of branching paths. And saying that people who experienced being on the same side, even five years ago, find themselves now in active you know, tension and conflict with each other. And I think you know, if you look at George Monbiot's attempt to sort of bring down and sort of smear Chris Smage the other week, and actually what's happened in practice, which is that Chris has you know, shown the weakness of George's use of data 
in Regenesis. And this is the Mondio, Mondio, the the Guardian. That's right. So, so you know, George wrote this book, Regenesis, which he has kind of sold as uh, agriculture is the worst thing that ever happened to the earth, and uh, the sustainable future lies through uh, some Finnish startup growing bacteria and vats that are going to feed us all. Now, he he oscillates backwards and forwards between rhetoric in which he says that we need a farm-free future and then other things that he can appeal to where he goes, oh, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I say very nice things about agroforestry in the book as well. So it, it's certainly, um, you know, George represents, I think, in good faith, this kind of big path, which is doubling down on the logics and promises of modernity mm. as a response to the depth of the trouble that we're in. And that has kind of, that's been reinforced by the tilting of the attention of the Davos set, let's say, yeah. to climate change in a new way that kind of happened post Greta. And you know, again, in the book, I talk about sort of Bill Gates's climate book as emblematic of how the climate conversation was shifting at the beginning of the 2020s. And, and so suddenly the, the environmental movement and the Green Parties find themselves becoming this kind of technocratic, a sort of political wing of this technocratic project of solving climate change through the application of hypermodern solutions. And the kind of tension that had always been there between you know that wing of environmentalism and, and you know green politics and the the Schumacher wing, if you like, mm. has sort of has been destabilized. It ceased to be a stable and sometimes fruitful tension within um, environmental politics, and it's become a kind of bewilderment on the part of people who didn't realize how far the movement that they're part of has traveled down this very big um, kind of techno fix uh, te technocratic trajectory and so that again is part of where i'm going at the start of the book was going like we have to step back a bit from talking about climate change because it's like you're on a walk in the woods and you come to this fork where you've got the big path going one way and the small path going the other way and you've got a sign but on both arrows of the sign it says taking climate change seriously And so unless we find another way of naming what these what this fork represents, then it's impossible to have a clear conversation about what's at stake here. Mm. And that's that's kind of, I think, part of the the puzzlement and the slowly growing bewilderment and alienation that a lot of you know people who've been involved for decades with uh, environmentalism have been feeling. And that you know, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is offer some ways of thinking and talking about this that might be helpful to having conversations where we make sense of these things. So, I mean, the current book, At Work in the Ruins, lays this out. So I guess what me and Kalle and perhaps our listeners are interested in is, will your next book be named the counterpoint to Andreas Malm's How to Blow Up a Pipeline, namely How to Pull Down a Windmill? Uh, well, that's that's definitely not my kind of book to write. It would require <laughs> more, more engineering expertise than I have. <laughs> but but Dougal, Dougal you, want to, you want to make a movie. I mean, this is how you become influential. Sell the script to Hollywood. <laughs> I think we, we see, like, I, I, what I want this to go is Dougal writing, like, an autobiography of Illich. I, I wanted to double down on this sort of, you know, 
metaphysical aspect, if you will, or sort of you know spiritual yeah. needs. Basically, the the two the two threads of work that are emerging for me now, sort of coming up for nine months since this book came out, and and you know with this book having started a lot of conversations and taken me in a lot of different directions, the two threads of work are on the one hand you know, that sort of going beyond the pale is sort of the heading that I have for it, which is what happens when you take seriously the things you're not meant to take seriously if you want to be taken seriously within the logic of modernity, mm. which heads into that kind of, you know, for want of a better word, that spiritual and metaphysical territory, even if those aren't necessarily the most helpful words for me to frame it. And the other thread is what does this making good ruins stuff look like in practice? Mm. Like, what what can we bring together? What can we say about both identifying where the kinds of capacity, resource or whatever you like within the world as it exists right now and even legible to its structures that are not under any obligation to pretend to make sense according to the logic of this world that I'm saying is ending. And then what is it worth putting those capacities and resources to work at in order to in order to create the conditions of possibility for more people being able to to follow the small paths to build up the capacity to meet each other's needs look after each other make lives worth living under difficult conditions in the times around and ahead of us so those are the sort of two sides to the work that i find myself getting invited into and I'm kind of using Substack as a place to to write about that so if if people haven't had enough words from me at the end of this then dougal.substack.com is that's where I'm sending out new essays and sharing other things that I'm up to and we'll see you know sooner or later one or both of those will bear fruit in book form as well beautiful thanks for coming on it's a pleasure well thank, thank you so much thank you so much the oak tree meets the sunrise lights half tempest and half gold when i was young when i was young this ancient tree was old The oak tree braves the noontide all like granite rocks abide But the roots of key, the roots of key are quick with ancient blood Songbirds know his branches, all his harp, the breezes play. But the oak tree stands, the oak tree stands on sentry all the day. The oak tree fronts the sunset, all half tempest and half gold. The soul of key, the soul of key is rooted in the mold. Deep dig those blind divining roots far from the sun and wind. 
till rats nor through the rats nor through the roots that are so blind. But the rats have yet their work to do, and the tale is half untold. For life was young and death was young when this tree yet was old.